0: Isn't that a reassuring thought that he will hold us fast? You know, you've probably heard and maybe even used the little response when someone asks how you're doing and you say, well, I'm hanging in there. Well, you know, God has promised that we're not just hanging in there in him, right? Jesus said that He is holding each one of us in his hand securely. And the Father who is greater even than him has us in his hand. So we are held fast by him. It's not a question of how hard we're hanging on to him. What a beautiful thought. Well, perhaps you've heard the conventional wisdom that there are two divisive topics that you shouldn't raise in polite company. Religion and politics. Actually, there's a third category that people get really defensive about, and that's their parenting. So wouldn't you know it, much of my adult life has been focused on how the three basic institutions of society, the family, the church, and the state, should function. That's why nobody invites me to their parties, I guess. (laughs) Living in metropolitan Washington area makes us front row spectators and sometimes participants in the political dramas that may or may not capture the attention of the rest of the country. And we certainly are living in a time when citizens and our representatives are sharply and somewhat evenly divided, holding very divergent views on the role of government, and even in some cases, on the need for government. One would think that the formulation of public policies, that is, what the government should do with respect to certain issues, would proceed from a very clear understanding of the legitimate role of civil government. Yet it seldom does, at least explicitly. Policy makers, candidates, voters, lobbyists, activists, and actually sometimes even the church all tend to make policy choices and prescriptions according to their own agendas and popular sentiments without explicitly considering the proper role of government or of citizens. Indeed, many policy debates hinge on identifying the proper role of government, yet the arguments from each side typically avoids the issue completely, implicitly assuming that the government should play whatever role they advocate. For example, most of us recently received an economic impact payment from the federal government in response to the financial hardships arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. This was authorized by the CARES Act, which cost the federal government two trillion dollars it didn't have. In a rare demonstration of unity, the Senate passed it unanimously after just one week of discussion And the next day, the House passed it by an unrecorded voice vote, and then later that day, the president signed it into law. These politicians were united in passing this legislation, but I'm sure for many diverse reasons, motives, ranging from stimulating the economy to redistributing income or wealth Yet seldom, if ever, have we heard these objectives being defended as within the legitimate scope of the government's responsibility. All too often, those on opposing sides of an issue merely talk past one another without challenging each other's underlying philosophy or assumptions. In part, I suppose we should expect policy debates that avoid the question of the government's proper role since most people have been conditioned to believe that there are no absolutes and that the government exists in large part to solve their problems therefore as long as a policy has enough backing to get implemented it is presumed to be legitimate So, how can we identify the proper role of government. Well, at the very least, policymakers are obligated to recognize the limits defined by the Constitution, but even that is twisted and stretched beyond recognition these days. It's more essential to understand the teachings of the Bible on this. So please turn to Romans 13 and your copy of the scriptures, Uh, even though the founding fathers were heavily influenced by what the scriptures teach concerning the role of government, and even though presumably many of them were not actually believers, many Christians neglect the Bible when it comes to manners that touch on politics and social issues. But God gave us the scriptures as our sufficient support sufficient source of truth that would shape all areas of our lives. So we need more than ever to understand the Bible's teaching on the role of civil government and the flip side of that coin, the role of us as citizens. The best place to begin that review is in the first 10 verses of Romans 13, which say, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul continues, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This passage is crucial to our understanding of the role of both The state, that is, civil government generally, whether national or local, and of citizens. In this passage, the Apostle Paul makes five major points about the government and citizens, which will be our outline this morning. These five points can be summarized by five words, the first letters of which spell the word state. S-T-A-T-E The S in state stands for sovereignty All government authority is ultimately delegated by God Look at verse 1 Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God Since God alone is truly sovereign, no one can assume or wield government power or any power unless God permits. Jesus affirmed this during his trial before Pilate as recorded in John 19 where he said, uh, where it's recorded, Pilate therefore said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. It follows then that those who govern are accountable to God for their stewardship of that authority. You remember the account in Daniel 4 of King Nebuchadnezzar, whom God... Made temporarily insane to teach him this very lesson. Now, the root word from the original Greek of the New Testament that is translated established in verse 1 is the word tasso. Tasso, which sometimes is translated ordained, appointed, ordered, or set in place. God has established a specific social order in which certain people are to exercise God-given authority over civil affairs. God expects both those who govern and those who are governed to submit to his social order, which is referred to as the ordinance of God in verse 2, where the word Ordinance is translated from the Greek word diatage, which is the noun form of the verb diataso, to ordain, to set in order. This God-ordained social order doesn't mandate a particular form of civil government. However, God does delegate authority to civil government without regard to the form in contrast with his delegation of authority to those in the family and the church, where he has established the critical elements of the governance structure, but not so in civil government. Note that neither the government of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, nor the government of the Romans— where, he was writing, where Paul was writing this book would have been much to the liking of us Americans today. Yet God still delegated authority to those rulers and governments for his purposes. Well, what does that say about our role as citizens? Well, Paul makes it clear at the outset what our role is. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, he says, because that authority ultimately is from God. Interestingly, that phrase, be in subjection, comes from the Greek word hupotasso, which means to come under, hupo, tasso, an established order. This is the same word used in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere when speaking of the submission of a wife to her husband and the submission of the church to Jesus Christ, as well as throughout Titus and 1 Peter concerning the submission to authority in the family, the workplace, and the church. This obviously is a major point in our passage here, Verse 2 adds that he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And verse 5 repeats that it is necessary to be in subjection. Likewise, 1 Peter 2, which I read earlier, tells us to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him. And he also said to honor the king. Titus 3.1 likewise says, be subject to rulers, to authorities. Now, that's not without limits. But it is the norm that God expects. God is the author of order and does not approve of anarchy or the taking of the law into our own hands when we happen to disagree with the government or each other. Remember that civil authorities are accountable to God for their stewardship of that authority and we in turn are accountable to him for our submission to that authority. If the law or its implementation is not quite what we'd like it to be, we're still bound to obey it as long as it doesn't cause us to violate the clear commands of God. This is exactly like the marriage relationship. God commands wives to be submissive to their husbands in Ephesians 5, 22 and elsewhere. In fact, in First Peter three, 1 Peter 3.1, which I read earlier, confirms that wives are to submit to their husbands in the same way that we are to submit to the civil government. Husbands are accountable to God for their loving care of their wives, and wives are accountable to God for their submission, even when the husband makes a bad decision, which we tend to do. Unless the husband would have the wife do something clearly in violation of scripture, she is to submit while offering her best advice. So just as Christian wives should be the best wives, so Christian citizens should be the best citizens. Not looking for ways to avoid submission to God-ordained authority, but submitting freely and cheerfully. In the event that the husband is not a believer or the government is thoroughly secular, this submission often is a powerful testimony that God uses to bring needed change. Paul's letter to the church in Rome, as you know, is a systematic treatment of major Christian doctrines. But throughout it all, His point is to ensure that right thinking about these doctrines leads to right behavior. He didn't write Romans 13 just to teach us about the role of government. His overall purpose was to teach us how we should live. This will become even clearer as we take up the second point in Paul's outline, the first T in the acronym STATE, which stands for TASK the primary task or function of civil government is to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. Look again at verses two through four. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So these verses explain the basic role of government by God's design. First, to exercise God's wrath in condemning evildoers with the sword, that is, with the government's God given enforcement powers, but also to praise those who do right. The Apostle Peter echoed this theme in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, when he says, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him. Why? For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. The government's responsibility to commend and condemn or to praise and to punish certainly is a very moral role requiring a clear understanding on its part of what is right and what is wrong. That's morality. It reinforces people's consciences about what is right, as we see in verse 5, and can be a deterrent or cause of fear for those who would practice evil, as we see in verses 3 and 4. Now, note that the word resists in verse two is translated from the Greek antitasomai, which as you might expect means going against ordained authority, tasso. So it's the exact opposite of the submission that's commanded in verse one. It's also instructive to note that the Greek word kakos translated as evil in these verses is also translated as wrong in verse 10. And this is an evil in the sense that it's evil by its very character. Indicating that the government's role extends beyond what has clearly bad consequences, like the adultery, murder, and stealing referenced in verse 9. But it also includes all actions that are inherently bad and evil, for example, even including the tax evasion warned against in verse 7. Now, having said that, look back in your copy of the Scriptures to Romans 12, the previous chapter, the end of that chapter, starting in verse 9. Paul didn't shift topics When he began speaking about the role of government in chapter 13, he was developing the same point he was making in chapter 12, where, starting in verse 9, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, and I'm sure the list could go on. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil, here's that word kakos again, to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, and here he quotes Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Then he quotes from Proverbs 25, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals, on his head. And then Paul wraps it up by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in that context, he begins chapter 13 on the role of government. But don't miss two things. First, notice the contrast in the roles. In chapter 12, he's addressing our role as individuals, as citizens. And that we are not to exercise vengeance as that's God's job. Then in chapter 13, we see that one way God does that is through civil government, where it says, "For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil." Second, notice the continuity from chapter 12 to chapter 13. Paul's overall purpose is to stress the need for all of us. To live righteously, to do the right thing. In connection with the task of government in chapter 13 then, our role of citizens is clear. We need to do what is right, not what is wrong. Ideally we would do right, that is we would do righteousness, not just to be commended by the government or even just to be commended by God, but to do it because it's right. That brings us to our third letter in the word state. It's the letter A, which stands for attitude. Government authorities serve God by serving people. As we read in verses 4 through 6, for it is a minister of God for you, to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So, it is God's intent that government officials and the government itself serve the people rather than the people serving the government. This is consistent with Christ's broader teaching and example that true leaders are those who demonstrate a servant's attitude. Uh, For example, Matthew 20, 26 and of other places. The fact that government employees are called civil servants and high officials are called ministers in some countries is consistent with this biblical attitude. But notice that people are not the only ones the government serves. Both verse 4 and verse 6 make it clear that ultimately, civil government serves God when it fulfills its God-ordained role. So our role as citizens, then, is to recognize that God is sovereignly working through civil government, as ungodly as it may be at times, to accomplish his purposes and that as a minister of God, every government is accountable to him for its stewardship of that responsibility. And in verse 5, we see that our God-given conscience should prompt us to submit to that. We should likewise be good stewards of the freedoms we have in our country to have a voice in the way we're governed. But to do so, as Peter taught in 1 Peter 2, For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves of God. That brings us to the fourth point of our outline, the letter T again, this time for taxes. The government must collect taxes to finance its role. Look at verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. These verses clearly anticipate that civil government will consist of authorities, rulers, servants, and so on, who will discharge this God-given responsibility. And the taxes are collected by the government are necessary to pay these public servants and to equip them to do their jobs well. Though never really popular, taxes are not inherently evil. They can be imposed, unfairly, and they can be used for improper purposes. But those abuses do not negate negate their necessity in God's design. By God's design, those who benefit from the liberty and justice made possible by the government should help to finance the government, much as those who benefit from the teaching and protection of their church leaders should be the ones to cover the cost of maintaining those ministries. Notice what is and is not said about taxes here. First, it indicates the general purpose of taxes when it says because of this, because of what? Well, the the duty just described in the previous verses that the government has to commend those who do right and to punish those who do evil. The verse goes on to explain, for rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing, The word for indicates that what follows is an explanation, right? That is, the basic purpose of taxes is to pay and equip those who perform that duty. Second, the verse seems to anticipate that everyone is subject to taxation. It doesn't say, because of this, some of you pay taxes. This actually stands in stark contrast with most modern tax policies, which often seek to disproportionately shift the tax burden to the wealthy, taxing them at a higher rate, and even eliminating the need for an opportunity for poor citizens to help pay for the protections and opportunities they enjoy. Well, do you suppose that God somehow made a mistake in requiring the same 10% tithe from everyone in ancient Israel, regardless of the size of their income or wealth? I don't think so. Third, notice that these verses refer to government as having just one basic duty. It says, because of this, and devoting themselves to this very thing, both in the singular. In fact, nowhere in scripture does God indicate any role for civil government other than the one outlined here, to commend those who do right and to punish those who do wrong, which are really complementary roles of, complementary aspects of the same thing. The various positive and negative dimensions of that role are often referred to as things like maintaining law and order, protecting individual liberties, and seeing that justice is done when those liberties are violated. There is no role for civil government beyond this basic function. Certainly no authority to take upon itself the responsibilities that properly belong to individuals, families, churches, private associations and businesses and so on. It has no authority to interfere with those responsibilities being carried out in the private sector. It may have a role in uh, regulating some of the processes, but not the ultimate responsibilities. So our corresponding role as citizens is clear. We need to pay on time all our taxes that are legally due, following Christ's teaching, in fact, in Luke 20, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, that brings us to the letter E in the word state, which stands for the word ethics. Civil government can regulate social conduct, but not belief. Look at verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This portion of the passage deals with interpersonal relationships, ethics, continuing Paul's theme from chapter 12. Now, the Ten Commandments, which these verses quote in part, can be summarized by the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the foundation of all morality. But this passage on the role of government speaks only about the second of those two categories, loving our neighbors. The point is that if we love our neighbors as ourselves, We should have no fear of violating civil law. Put another way, the civil government has a responsibility to help enforce the love your neighbor part of God's law. Obviously, the civil government is not the only social institution charged with helping people to love one another. In fact, the family and the church actually have more fundamental roles in both teaching and enforcing that virtue. Indeed, ultimately, God's created order anticipates that individuals will govern their own behavior by exercising loving self-control toward others. This self-government minimizes the extent to which the family, the church, and the state must exercise their enforcement responsibilities and it's precisely what the American founders anticipated. For example, James Madison, who is known as the chief architect of the Constitution, commented, we have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government. Upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Verse 9 gives specific examples, commands and laws against adultery, murder, and stealing. And acknowledges a common reason why people attack their neighbors in these ways. They harbor covetousness rather than love, in their hearts. Now, the, the primary way that governments help to enforce the love your neighbor part of God's law is to protect individual liberties and God-given rights. This includes seeing that justice is done when their liberties are violated. But it's quite clear from the context of this passage that helping citizens to obey The love your neighbor part of God's law is also a primary role of civil government. Uh, We already saw at the end of Romans 12, Paul teaching that people need to love their enemies, to respect what is right in the sight of all men, to be at peace with all men, and to overcome evil with good. Likewise the end of our chapter, chapter 13, goes on to exhort us to behave properly. And the context of the similar passage in 1 Peter 2 teaches us to keep our behavior excellent among those in the world and to be zealous for what is good, with particular application for servants, even us as employees, wives, and also husbands. So in both the Romans and 1 Peter passages then, the roles of the government and citizens are discussed in the context of our greater responsibility to love others and to do what is right. The government has an important role to enforce our compliance with that responsibility. The Apostle Paul addresses that theme again in his letters to the Galatians and to Titus. In Galatians 5 13, we read, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Then in Titus 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. However, notice that these passages do not indicate that God has delegated authority to civil government to regulate the love God part of the Ten Commandments. That is, government is to... regulate conduct, not belief. Notice that when these passages refer to the government's role, it is always exercised in response to those who, for example, those who resist or oppose the government's God-given rule, as in verse 2, to those whose behavior is good, in verse 3, and to those who do, that is continually practice, evil. In verse 4, it's in response to these things. God has ordained that the family and the church, not the state, are responsible for the love God part of his basic commands, and great mischief ensues when the government seeks to take on that role itself. Fortunately, the First Amendment to our Constitution sums it up well Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But you might be asking, isn't it true that you can't legislate morality? Well, like most divisive and confusing concepts, that's partly true and partly false. It's true in the sense that laws in and of themselves do not make people good. We can't expect to change people's hearts by simply passing laws against being bad. However, that doesn't mean that such laws are useless or improper. In fact, they're necessary in order for the government to protect liberties and exercise justice. Laws against murder, thefts, and adultery, for example, to cite the evils Paul mentions here from the Ten Commandments, have the primary purpose of spelling out how murderers, thieves, and adulterers, and even their victims at times, will be treated under the government's God-given responsibility to bear the sword and to bring wrath upon the one who practices evil. Justice requires that such cases be treated fairly and consistently And the laws should help to make that a reality. Appropriate laws merely reinforce our obligation to love your neighbor as part of God's law. Having said that, we can't ignore the fact that these laws sometimes play a significant role in preventing evil deeds. As Paul put it in verses 3 through 5, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience' sake. The fact that the law spells out the punishment for certain crimes often helps to deter those crimes. God intends that this should prick our conscience and influence our behavior. Moreover, as I suggested earlier, the government's role in its very essence is a moral role. The government needs to be able to distinguish between right and And wrong if it is to punish evildoers and praise those who do right. In that sense, all legislation is moral. But it's important whose morality it reflects. Is it God's absolute morality or man's fallen consensus? Well, what is our role as citizens in that context? It should be clear we need to obey God's commands to love our fellow man. Not because we fear the government, but because we fear God and genuinely love others from the heart. This includes fulfilling all of our obligations freely and timely. Notice verses 7 and 8. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Our duty to the government and to other people must not be deficient either in amount or timeliness. And at no point should we be found as not having fulfilled all of our obligations. These obligations include not only taxes and other government fees like customs, but also fear and honor for our authorities and love for our fellow men. These are obligations. Peter puts it succinctly in 1 Peter 2, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. God is not interested in just external compliance, but more importantly, in the right heart attitude that gives gives rise to this uh, honor, fear, and love. By the way, the word love here is God's agape love, is sacrificial, unconditional love that we should have toward one another. So given all these things, it's important to recognize that the proper application of the Bible's instructions on the role of government and citizens fits neither a conservative nor a liberal political agenda as those terms are used today. It's safe to say that unless increasing numbers of families, churches, and policymakers advance God's agenda here, instead, we should expect to see more broken and dysfunctional families, more impotent churches, and even more intrusive and demanding government. As our founders generally understood god established god's established order is for our collective benefit and we violate it at our peril let us pray father we thank you for revealing Your truth to us in your scriptures, we do pray for those who are in authority over us in civil government, that you would give them wisdom from you. Give them the attitude that they are serving not just the people genuinely, but also serving you. And give us, Lord, the Ability, the desire, the joy of meeting our obligations to love one another and so fulfill the law. May you be pleased by your um, work in our lives, individually and corporately, to accomplish your will in our day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.